So there is likely to be two situations where you might conduct a workplace investigation. One, where the facts are in dispute, or um, secondly, if there's a statutory scheme that actually requires an investigation. Every time there's an issue or a, a disciplinary matter in the workplace does not mean it needs to be investigated. In my experience, there's probably three areas where um, there's criticism of HR, and that tends to be uh, where there's a failure to identify performance or conduct issues effectively, a failure to investigate them to the standards required, and a failure to resolve those conduct and performance issues effectively. Now, courts and tribunals are telling us in, in case law that HR managers don't need to have the same skill and standard of experience of police or lawyers when doing workplace investigations, but um, they definitely do. HR do need to have um, a sound working knowledge of uh, admissibility of evidence and natural justice. Otherwise, you know, hopefully not, you might end up a, a case study in one of these cases we're talking about today. So in terms of some of the flaws we see in investigations, you can see on the screen there, these are the most common. Uh, the most common ones are the scope of the investigation is too narrow. There are unjustifiable delays in investigating a complaint. Uh, there's reliance on hearsay. The wrong standard of proof perhaps is considered. There's a failure to identify key witnesses or um, there's been a failure to follow a workplace policy. So we're going to talk about some of these areas, some of the case law that uh, gives some further example. And uh, Kate, I'll hand over to you to talk about the next um, slide. Alrighty, so uh, firstly, we're just going to have a quick chat about misconduct in the workplace more generally. Uh, so in June 2018, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, and the then Minister for Women, the Honourable Kelly O'Dwyer, announced the National Inquiry into Sexual Harassment in Australian Workplaces. And this resulted in the 2022 Respect at Work report which broke down statistics regarding sexual harassment in the workplace. And we've extracted some of them there on the screen for you to see today. Now, obviously sexual harassment is not the only thing that is subject of independent investigations in the workplace uh, and should always be referred to police. Uh, however, the statistics in the report do show the prevalence of misconduct in the workplace. So as you can see up there on the screen, 33% uh, of people who had been in the workplace in the previous five years had said they had experienced uh, workplace sexual harassment. And of those people, uh, women were more likely than men to experience harassment. So 39% of women experienced sexual harassment in the workplace as opposed to 26% of men, but those numbers are still very high. Approximately 49% of these people said that the same type of harassment had happened to them previously at the same workplace. So it was not an isolated incident. And interestingly, 45% of those people who said they had experienced the same type of sexual harassment uh, had said it had been going on for 12 months or longer, perhaps a sign that an investigation hadn't taken place. Now, of the 33 people, 33% of people who said they'd been sexually harassed, 52% of workers said they had been sexually harassed at their workstation or where they worked. And finally, this, this might be something that you see or hopefully you don't see in your workplaces. Uh, two of the most commonly reported types of behaviour uh, were sexually suggestive comments or jokes, uh, intrusive questions about the worker's private life or physical appearance. Now, just to reiterate, these statistics only cover sexual harassment. So you can imagine the prevalence of other issues such as bullying in the workplace as well that might need investigating. Now, it's very important to bear in mind that employers have a duty of care to provide a safe working environment for their employees. So not only do employers have a duty to make sure the physical environment is safe for employees, 
uh, but they also have a, they're also responsible for preventing psychological harm in the workplace. Now, if an organisation does not properly investigate a complaint and take action where required, they will be vulnerable to legal action. So an example of this is from 2018 to 2019, uh, workers' compensation claims for mental stress received on average $46,400, which was more than three times the median compensation amount of all serious claims. So quite significant amounts there. Now, onto the next slide here. Uh, we're going to have a quick chat about suspending an employee while a workplace investigation takes place. So unions can be particularly critical of organisations suspending employees while a workplace investigation is taking place. However, while unions only have one person to worry about, their member, uh, it's important that organisations understand that they have duties towards numerous stakeholders, uh, importantly other employees, who have to be considered as employers have that duty of care that I spoke about previously. Now, in our view, in most cases, suspension for a reasonable period of time on full pay to conduct a workplace investigation will be appropriate. And up there on the slide, we've got the matter of Venia v Railway and Transport Health Fund. Now, in this case, an employer was lawfully able to suspend an employee while undertaking a workplace investigation, uh, despite there being no express suspension clause in their written contract. Now, Justice Lee of the Federal Court of Australia held that at common law, an employer has a right to temporarily suspend an employee on full pay for as long as is necessary to undertake and conclude investigation. And this includes situations where the employer is seeking to reasonably determine issues, find facts um, in relation to allegations, um, or where there's suspicions of employee misconduct. Uh, and if uh, this happens in your workplace uh, and a union member disagrees with you, we would suggest referring them to this matter because it quite clearly sets out uh, what your entitlement as an employer is. And I think that's a good point, Kate. Uh, I mean, I've certainly had um, unions and plaintiff lawyers object to a workplace investigation being conducted by saying, you know, there's no express clause in the contract that that might allow you to stand this person down. Um, and generally it, it is appropriate to suspend someone during an investigation, but the Avenia case is a, is a really good one because it um, articulates that there's an implied right, whether there's a contractual clause or not to suspend somebody. So long as you're investigating legitimate um, complaints or allegations. And I think uh, what you were talking about previously too with sexual harassment, Many, uh, many investigations that we supervise or conduct do tend to relate to sexual harassment or sexual misconduct of some kind because they're the investigations where there's rarely a witness uh, and it will be he said, she said, or, um, you know, he said, he said. And so it's very difficult to know who's telling the truth. So I think that's the content of, of quite a lot of them. With the requirement to participate, obviously, I think probably most um, listeners will understand that it's a lawful and reasonable direction to require an, an employee to participate in a workplace investigation if it's aimed at um, making findings in relation to alleged wrongdoing, breach of policies, breach of a code of conduct, breach of the terms of a contract of employment, and a failure to um, participate in the investigation can of itself be a disciplinary matter for which the employee could be dismissed. So in this uh, Stephen and Seahill Enterprises um, matter, the employer was wanting to conduct an independent investigation into allegations. The subject of the allegations was refusing to participate. He was dismissed because of that and the Fair Work Commission found that um, that was a lawful and reasonable direction for the employee to undergo an investigation interview for the purpose of the investigation. Um, in terms of other witnesses, it is generally going to be lawful and reasonable for other witnesses to participate as well if 
the aim is, as it often will be, for the employer to make findings in relation to some form of wrongdoing. So an employee saying, I don't want to be involved or um, I don't want to have anything to do with it is rarely going to be an excuse because if everyone did that, you'd never be able to make findings in relation to um, an investigation. In terms of the, um, I guess, for want of a better word, perpetrator or, or the respondent, um, the subject of the allegations, um, sometimes they may be a former employee and it may obviously not be possible to issue a lawful and reasonable direction for them to participate. Um, they can do so voluntarily. But I think a mistake we sometimes see investigators make in this area is whilst they may have collected a whole lot of relevant, credible, admissible evidence relating to uh, witness evidence that can be corroborated, because the subject of the allegation hasn't participated or elected not to, perhaps because they've been dismissed already, um, or, or they may be on workers' compensation, for example, the investigator has said that they're unable to make any findings. That won't um, always be the case, depending on the strength of the evidence. It's not, um, natural justice does not require the subject of the allegations to always participate in an investigation. Obviously, if you're getting refusals, then the person can be offered the opportunity to respond in writing or make a statement. Or if there's no involvement whatsoever, depending on the strength of the evidence and what can be corroborated, findings may still be able to be made uh, without the respondent participating. And that will depend on every investigation, but certainly we've had some where findings were made that were um, substantiated, even though the uh, respondent has not been involved. Um, in terms of the process, uh, for conducting an investigation, obviously, one of the first things will be receiving the, the complaint or the allegations from an employee internally, or it may be from an external um, stakeholder. It is not always appropriate to simply just forward the complaint to the respondent and say, this is what we've received about you. Um, sometimes it might be necessary to engage an independent investigator to particularize the complaint in a way that uh, that would allow it to be properly investigated. Generally, a written complaint, for example, would not be provided directly to the respondent, but um, the nature of the allegation should be pretty clearly put to the respondent early on in the process. Um, this will usually be followed by a, a suspension on full pay which we've um, uh, referred to in one of the previous slides, if you don't have an express contractual clause for that to um, happen. And generally you would be interviewing the respondent last after all the evidence has been collected from the other witnesses. Um, now it's not compulsory for an external investigator to be appointed in every situation. I would say in, serious allegations or um, perhaps ones where there's likely to be conflicts of interest raised if someone internally conducts it or one that might be high profile, you may want to consider engaging uh, a legal practitioner or a qualified investigator uh, external to the organisation to conduct the investigation. In some cases, you may want to do that under legal privilege. So you'll go through your lawyers who will engage the investigator on your behalf. The purpose of doing that is to set the investigation up so that um, the final report can't be disclosed in litigation. There can always be challenges to that, um, but there's certain um, levels of confidentiality and safety that can be placed around a report that is uh, commissioned under legal privilege. Obviously, you want to give um, the respondent the opportunity to respond to all of the, the allegations, generally at the end of the process. Um, all parties will need to be heard, all relevant witnesses. Uh, sometimes that may be people that have resigned and left, and you may need to make a judgment call as to whether they should be contacted 
to voluntarily participate in the investigation. And uh, obviously concluded findings will need to be made, weighing up the evidence on the balance of probabilities, which is the, the legal test that workplace investigators must make findings upon. Uh, we will talk about that a little bit later, but it's not the criminal standard of beyond reasonable doubt. It's the balance of probabilities. Is it more probable than not based on the evidence that what is alleged happened? Um, usually you will see findings uh, articulated in a written report that will go to the decision maker that will set out the evidence, weigh up the evidence and make findings. Um, it is important, obviously, as I sort of alluded to, that the investigator acts fairly and without bias. So if, if the investigator is somebody that perhaps has disciplined the person under investigation in the past, they're probably not going to be considered independent. If it's the HR manager uh, and it's a, man, uh, it's a member of the management team, then there could be obviously issues of um, partiality, impartiality raised there. Um, so it will be a judgment call in each situation whether you have an external investigator or someone internally. But as you'll see when we go through some of the case law, this is a developing area of risk for most organisations. And I think plaintiff lawyers and unions have worked out that it's easier to attack the process than to attack the allegations. So if you know you're guilty of something, sexual harassment, for example, then all the effort will go into attacking the process. And in an unfair dismissal context, the process is, is really important. Or in some cases, as some investigations we've dealt with, it's got so bogged down in the minute detail of the process that you wonder how is this investigation ever going to be finalised. So um, it definitely is an area that uh, unions and plaintiff lawyers are very alive to um, the traps that you can fall into. And um, with that, Kate, I'll let you talk about some interviewing tips. Yes. Uh, so I guess following on from what you've just said, Paul, regarding process, uh, these are some, some interview tips uh, to follow when conducting workplace investigations. So the first one up there on the screen is who should be interviewed. Uh, now, we suggest only individuals whose evidence is likely to be relevant to the facts at issue in the investigation should be interviewed. So obviously the complainant and the respondent should be interviewed, um, anyone who witnessed uh, the event, um, and in the case of schools, if there are allegations that relate to a student, um, then the student should be interviewed uh, with a parent as a support person. Now, the second one up there is who speaks? Uh, the difference between a support person and an advocate. Now, individuals participating in an investigation must be given the option of bringing a support person to the interview. And that's an aspect of an investigation that might be attacked in future if you don't give someone the opportunity to bring a support person to their interview. Uh, it should be noted though, that there is a very distinct difference between a support person and an advocate. And these terms are sometimes confused in workplace investigations. So to advocate means to speak on someone's behalf and to represent their views. And normally advocates appear in tribunals or court settings. And as a rule of thumb, they do not have a role in workplace investigations. On the other hand, uh, the role of the support person is to look after the psychological well-being of the interviewee, uh, but not to advocate for them or speak for them. Uh, now, the exception to this rule uh, is union members. Uh, these employees are entitled to be assisted by their union representative during disciplinary proceedings. Now, we've got building rapport with the witness up there on the screen. Uh, this is a really important aspect of a, a workplace investigation uh, because establishing rapport with the person being interviewed is likely to result in you gaining candid and relevant information from that person which really is your role as the uh, investigator. 
And this maybe goes without saying, but rapport is built uh, with a combination of verbal and nonverbal behaviours. Um, and you can adjust your interviewing style to kind of make the other person feel a lot more comfortable. Uh, with that mean, you know, friendly introductions, smiling, um, not using an accusatory tone, um, you know, using pleasant warm tone of voice, um, having minimal distractions in the room, um, active listening. There are a number of things that you can do to make people feel comfortable in an uncomfortable situation. Now, the fourth point up there, we've got seeking clarification and using specific questions. And this is particularly important in workplace investigations. So investigators should be asking open-ended questions in non-threatening tones uh, to elicit responses from the interviewee about the allegations. So they're, they're gonna be able to tell their story if you're asking those open-ended questions. However, you don't want to let interviewees tell a long story uninterrupted. Um, it's very important to ask specific questions about the relevant facts in issue. Now, witnesses will rarely, if ever, provide sufficient information by their own free account. Uh, so it's your job to really drill down on the facts in issue and ask them specific questions, as well as letting them, you know, tell you their account of events. So an example in a bullying investigation might be saying something like, you've told me that at the end of the performance review, you told Mike he could leave the office. How would you describe your tone of voice? That's not something that someone being interviewed is going to just offer themselves or they're unlikely to. And we'd suggest preparing these questions in advance of the interview to minimize the need to follow up with the individual after the interview has concluded. Now, following on from that, we've got challenging inconsistencies. So contradictions in evidence provided by a witness has to be clarified and put to them in order to avoid inconclusive findings or a flawed investigation. And challenging a witness's inconsistent statement should normally be left to the latter part of the interview uh, to reduce the ability of the witness to create an alternative explanation. So challenges should be phrased as a problem-solving question rather than a confrontation. So for example, you might say, uh, you said to me earlier that you thought Mike was a poor performer. Uh, this is a copy of his last performance assessment made by you and you've rated him as being above average. Can you explain that a little bit to me? Um, that, that kind of, you know, puts it back on them, but you're not accusing them of, of lying to you. You're just simply asking them, questions about the situation, but in a very specific manner. Now, up there, we've also got confidentiality, and this is very important as well. Um, anyone who's interviewed should be directed to keep the content of the interview confidential. And discussing allegations raised in an interview with the wider workforce obviously has the potential to damage the integrity of the investigation. Uh, so interviewees should be asked to sign a confidentiality form as part of the interview process, uh, along with their support persons as well. Following on from that, we've got uh, victimisation. Um, it's important at the start of the interview or in correspondence to any interviewees um, that they be advised that they shouldn't be subject to any form of vic victimisation because of their involvement in an investigation. And you should just let them know at the start of the process uh, that if they do feel victimised because they're participating in an investigation, uh, they should contact HR or another person in authority. And finally, as we've touched on previously, uh, refusals to attend an interview. Um, now, directing an employee to attend an interview for a workplace investigation is a lawful and reasonable direction uh, that must be followed by an employee. And if you direct an employee to attend an interview and they refuse, that becomes a disciplinary matter. Okay, so um, for anyone who's confused, it's not the 22nd of September, as I noticed on that um, last slide. It is actually uh, 22nd of November. So um, uh, that might have been uh, on our slides last month, perhaps the date. Uh, two, two things about the last... Um, slide as well that I would add is um, uh, building rapport with a witness is 
obviously necessary because you want to extract as much information and admissions out of the person as possible. And if they feel comfortable um, disclosing things to you, then as an investigator, that's that's really what, what you want. You don't want to be uh, overly inquisitorial or legalistic or hostile because people are naturally vulnerable in these uh, situations where they're being interrogated and are likely to give you less information if they feel relaxed and comfortable um, and it's a quiet, um, non-confrontational setting, then they're more likely to open up. And that's that's really what you want. So I, I always start off with a series of really non-confrontational questions about, you know, how did you get here today? Terrible weather in Melbourne. <laughs> I wish it would stop raining. Um, you know, think how long have you been doing your job? Uh, what's uh, what do you like most about you know your job? Those sorts of things. So people are a little bit more relaxed and then lead into your your questioning. And on the the point of confidentiality, I think it's important to recognise that some investigations require a very delicate um, uh, approach to. Uh, witness confidentiality or, or or more so perhaps in terms of the victim. So sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, um, getting someone to sign something that makes them feel like they can't speak to their um, psychologist, they can't speak to their partner, or they can't speak to a medical practitioner um, is going to look pretty severe. So depending on the nature of the allegations, you don't you don't want to look like you're really gagging somebody. And um, plaintiff lawyers will be right onto that if you hand over some fire and brimstone-related confidentiality document. So they do need to be tailored to the particular situation. Uh, with weighing up evidence, I think I've sort of referred to that. The Brigginshaw test is... If you have an investigator and they don't know what the Brigginshaw test is, then they shouldn't be engaged to conduct the investigation because this is the quintessential test that the evidence needs to be tested against. And um, there seems to be a lot of confusion as to what that actually involves for, for some reason. I've set out on the slide there an extract from that decision, but essentially and practically speaking, in the context of a workplace investigation, the test requires that workplace investigators closely scrutinise all the evidence to be satisfied that it's strong enough to substantiate the allegations on the balance of probabilities. Is it more probable than not that the allegation occurred? Supporting that conclusion, obviously, with relevant and admissible evidence. And we'll talk about what is not admissible um, in a moment. But... The Brigginshaw test also requires that the more serious and severe the allegations, the more um, credible or the multiple sources of evidence are necessary to substantiate it. So if somebody's being accused of um, you know, theft or sexual misconduct or some form of sexual harassment, then that carries with it a positive finding, a substantiated finding, carries very serious consequences for that person's career and reputation. So you will want multiple sources of positive, admissible, credible evidence, preferably to support a more serious allegation. And um, so the, the, the test needs to be um, considered in that context. So in terms of when I talk about reliable sources of evidence and admissible sources of evidence. Um, an important concept to remember is corroboration. So proving the facts, corroborated evidence has greater weight than uncorroborated evidence. Multiple sources of evidence from eyewitnesses is the strongest source of evidence. Other original sources of evidence are really important. So obviously CCTV footage, um, can be great in terms of definitively proving something happened or didn't happen if it was captured by CCTV. CCTV is also quite notorious in the fact that it is easily lost, overridden, deleted. Um, 
So when you do have some form of misconduct occur in the workplace, and it's likely to be recorded on an electronic device, a laptop, a phone, um, or captured on CCTV, that evidence needs to be preserved really, really quickly before it is lost. Um, hearsay is a form of unreliable evidence. So someone said, someone else told them that something happened. It's not evidence that is eliminated, but um, you need to be really cautious relying only on hearsay evidence. Particularly, the Brigginshaw test will operate such that if all you have is hearsay evidence and um, the allegations are particularly serious, you may not be able to, you probably won't be able to substantiate them in the absence of other direct credible evidence, such as eyewitness evidence or evidence that's corroborated by others. Circumstantial evidence also warrants a very close look. Um, and while sometimes similar fact or coincidence evidence where the person's alleged to have behaved in a similar fashion in circumstances in the past can be considered, um, some caution needs to be exercised if that's the only evidence that you've got. Um, so moving on to procedural fairness, uh, this uh, Romero and Fastad shipping case is a really good example of how not to conduct a workplace investigation because the HR manager in this case um, ended up in the witness box in the federal court. And um, I keep talking about this case all the time. So um, hopefully she is not listening into this presentation because it's probably a bit embarrassing. But in, in that case, um, an officer on a ship had a falling out with her manager and made a complaint of relentless and targeted bullying. Her manager made a counter complaint against her about her performance. The employer, Fastad Shipping, had um, in the contract of employment of the person making the complaint, uh, a clause that said all Fastad Shipping policies are to be observed at all times. There was a workplace policy on, on workplace investigations, um, and it was bound to be incorporated into the contract of employment of the person who complained. The policy had in it um, an option for workplace complaints to be resolved informally and an option for workplace complaints to be resolved formally with workplace investigation. The employee wanted her complaint dealt with informally, but despite that, the new HR manager formally investigated it and she did the investigation herself. The federal court found that the HR manager made the following complaint, uh, following errors when investigating the matter. She didn't follow the informal pathway in the policy, which uh, was permissible under the policy and is what the employer wanted. The HR manager interviewed the person against whom the allegations were, uh, were made first before obtaining an account of the complaints from the employee who complained. Uh, the HR manager who was the investigator focused heavily on the complainant's uh, competency and capacity and temperament and less so on the bullying complaints. The HR manager took virtually no notes of witness interviews, which is a big, big boo-boo, didn't record it, didn't take any notes. Um, she didn't interview all relevant uh, witnesses and she was found not to have been impartial as she was overheard telling the perpetrator that he shouldn't be overly concerned with the outcome and that it would all be okay. Um, so the employee in that case sued the company for breach of contract and was successful. The full court of the federal court found that the investigation policy formed part of the employee's contract of employment because the wording in the contract was promissory in nature and imposed reciprocal obligations on the employer to follow its own policies, which included the investigation policy. Accordingly, um, it was found to be a breach of contract. So a couple of lessons there, obviously look at employment contracts, make sure the, the clauses around um, workplace policies um, are 
operative and don't place obligations or an onus on the company to follow its own policies and, and in fact allows the company to depart from its own policies if necessary, but that the emphasis is still on the employee complying with the policy. Um, and obviously uh, the tips are interview all relevant witnesses, take notes, don't tell people halfway through the process, it'll be okay. I'm sure it will be un all unsubstantiated and um, probably don't have a policy on workplace investigations. I wouldn't recommend that such a policy uh, exist because you're locking yourself into a particular process. And this policy was a little bit strange. So that case is a bit of a hamburger with a lot and is a good example of um, what not to do. Now, another sage reminder of the importance of procedural fairness can be found in the 2020 decision of John Lupson v Australian Pacific Airports. And in this matter, Mr. Lupson had been accused of misconduct in the workplace, uh, which included sending inappropriate and unprofessional content from his work email address uh, and breaching the code of conduct by entering the workplace without a valid security clearance. Now, an investigation was conducted and it was found that Mr. Lupson had engaged in misconduct and as a consequence, he was summarily dismissed. And following his dismissal, uh, Mr. Lupson filed an unfair dismissal claim. And ultimately, the Fair Work Commission found that even though Mr. Lupson had committed some of the acts of alleged misconduct, and even though two of the allegations were actually found to be a valid reason for dismissal, the dismissal in itself was found to be unfair. Now, the commission found that the employer had taken a retrospective kitchen sink approach to the investigation, uh, which included investigating not only current, but also historical allegations about the employee's conduct, which were not of any seriousness. And the commission found that this approach to the employer's workplace investigation was just aimed at justifying the termination of, the, of his employment. So they were just you know, trying to capture every single possible allegation and just hope that something would stick. And as a result of this, uh, the Fair Work Commission ordered compensation of over $8,000 plus applicable superannuation to the employee. And the case demonstrates, or the decision demonstrates, uh, that investigations need to be procedurally fair in order to be considered legitimate by the Commission. So the Fair Work Commission will give significant weight to an employer's approach in conducting a workplace investigation, regardless of the outcome. And another key takeaway is if you summarily dismiss an employee based on findings from a flawed workplace investigation, the dismissal could be considered harsh, unjust or unreasonable, even if you do have a valid reason for dismissal. Okay, so moving on, we're going to have a chat about impartiality. So up there on the screen, we have the matter of Anders v. the Hutchins School. And in this matter, Mrs. Anders was terminated from her employment as a teacher following a workplace investigation into her behaviour, uh, which was alleged to be uncooperative, disrespectful, and amounted to a breakdown of trust and confidence. Now, Mrs. Anders had uh, posted uh, inappropriate messages on Facebook about her industrial concerns. And importantly, she had allegedly glared and rolled her eyes at the deputy principal. Now, following her termination, Mrs. Anders filed an unfair dismissal claim. And the commission found that the investigation of some of the allegations had not been impartial. For example, the deputy principal was involved in conducting the investigation of his own complaint that Mrs. Anders had glared and rolled her eyes at him, which Mrs. Anders denied. In this decision, uh, the Fair Work Commission noted that an investigation report will be relevant to the Fair Work Commission's deliberations only if it's established that the employer conducted a full and extensive investigation into all the relevant matters uh, as was reasonable in the circumstances. Uh, the employee gave the uh, employer gave the employee every reasonable opportunity to respond, and the findings were based on reasonable grounds. 
Now, again, this shows that if you want to be able to use an investigation report to support taking industrial action, it needs to be done impartially and it must comply with the principles of procedural fairness. Um, I think you meant. I think you meant there. If you intend to rely upon an investigation uh, report for taking disciplinary action, not yes, industrial action, not industrial action. <laughs> <laughs> Two very different things. <laughs> um, and I should say to, uh, if anyone has any questions, feel free to put them in the Q and A box. Um, uh, we, I forgot to mention that at the, at the start. We can, we'll have some time at the end to answer some questions. Um, on the issue of contamination, uh, there's a few cases in this area, but this is essentially where an investigation was done into someone's misconduct and um, the person was dismissed and then they brought an unfair dismissal claim and then they claimed, you know, the employer relied upon the investigation report for the purposes of supporting the dismissal. And the employee claims that the report was contaminated by extraneous um, information uh, or that the process was not done properly. So in this particular case, um, the employer received a complaint that uh, from a customer actually that Mr. Bridge had um, sexually harassed her uh, and the store manager acted really quickly and summarily dismissed Mr. Bridge and then conducted a workplace investigation. So um, Mr. Bridge wasn't even interviewed as part of that process. And so obviously it's gonna be difficult to rely upon uh, an investigation report and the findings if, as in this case, um, the, the employer was found to have had, been, had a um, predisposed uh, view about the outcome. So the Fair Work Commission found um, that the dismissal was, quote, nothing less than procedurally disastrous um, for the following reasons, Mr. Bridge notified the employer that he had a doctor's appointment was going on stress leave and the employer acted too quickly to dismiss him without a reasonable opportunity for him to respond to the allegations. And the investigator did not in interview Mr. Bridge uh, during the investigation process and made up his mind that Mr. Bridge had sexually harassed the customer before the investigation had even started. So... That's always going to be a difficulty um, if you act on the evidence of one person uh, and don't actually get the full story. The investigator did not provide full details of the complaint to Mr. Bridge. There, there was uh, CCTV footage um, as well, which was not provided to the employee. And um, in this case, Mr. Bridge was reinstated and uh, compensated $3,000. So not a good outcome there for Globe, Globe Bottle Shops. Um, moving on to the production of the report. So um, I think there's, there's sort of two elements to this recent, um, fairly recent decision, which related to a Catholic priest uh, who was the employer. And this was really more around um, the request from the person under investigation for a huge amount of documents. And we see this happen very frequently, particularly when um, plaintiff lawyers get involved. And I don't want to sound like I'm being disparaging of plaintiff lawyers that do their job very well, but um, they will ask, and often the union as well, for essentially every piece of evidence and every document before they're willing to have their client or their member attend an interview. And this can be really, really frustrating if really all you're doing is trying to find out what happened and ask that people be involved. This is a really good case to remember because it cites another well-known case which is extracted um, on the slide there. Um, Employers are not required to have an open file policy um, and procedural fairness does not require that the decision maker 
disclose every piece of evidence to the affected person. Um, all that's necessary is that the person under, under investigation have an understanding of the nature and specifics of the allegation. That doesn't mean that you have to give them all 500 documents that they believe exist uh, on the issue. So it's about calibrating the expectations there. Uh, you know, if the police come and interview somebody about an alleged crime, they don't give the person under uh, investigation all their police documents before the person's willing to speak to the police. Now, there's obviously a right to privilege against self-incrimination. That may come up sometimes in an investigation process, um, but generally at a workplace level, that's probably not going to be relevant. There may be some documents that are particularly relevant that the person may be permitted to see, but not every document. In the case of the production of the report, there's no right for the respondent to be given the report at the end of the process. And we have never done that and wouldn't, wouldn't recommend that, generally speaking, unless there's some sort of statutory right to receive the report. Um, and a report that's done or an investigation that's done under legal privilege will obviously be one where um, the report will not be provided outside of those that are the specific decision makers because if it is handed over, then privilege is waived and any advice and other documents that relate to the subject matter could be requested. Um, so there's no general right for the production of the investigation report. And um, that's, that's a concept that's being upheld in most challenges to reports in, in the Fair Work Commission. But it is a dynamic area and um, it's becoming increasingly litigious. So whilst it's appropriate generally to disclose the, the nature of the findings, um, the report doesn't have to be disclosed. And as I said, of course, you don't have to hand over all the investigators' documents to the person prior to an interview. Uh, a final point we'd like to make is do not try and use conducting an independent investigation as a threat to an employee. And a prime example of this is up on the screen now. Uh, in the 2020 matter of Lamont v University of Queensland, uh, Dr Lamont, uh, a lecturer at the University of Queensland, made a complaint about Professor Moore, who was also employed by the university. Now, Professor Moore subsequently took adverse action against Dr. Lamont by informing two other professors of the contents of his complaint. And the university took further adverse action against Dr. Lamont by threatening to commence an investigation into his conduct uh, as Dr. Lamont had failed to, uh, failed to respond to a request for information regarding his complaint. Uh, so they threatened to conduct an investigation in relation to that. And the federal court found that the university's threat to open an investigation was calculated to intimidate Mr. Lamont into complying with the university's demand uh, and caused him to fear the consequences for his employment if he didn't respond. The federal court also held that the university did not act in accordance with uh, relevant policies, including the staff grievance policy. Now, the University of Queensland was ordered to pay $37,000 in pecuniary penalties and $12,000 of that total amount was penalty for the threat to initiate an investigation into Dr Lamont's conduct. So the key takeaway here is that threatening to open an investigation in certain circumstances can constitute adverse action. So if you state that you're planning on conducting an investigation, ensure the reasons for doing so are legitimate uh, and that you plan on following through if necessary. Okay, so look, at this is a... Um a dynamic area and one that's um, evolving and the case law um, seems to just evolve in this area. So I guess the takeaway tips are 
the more serious the allegations, the more reputational um, harm there is. Depending on your industry, there can be media interest in um, the content of these sorts of things. And with the Respect at Work recommendations being um, legislated and the new sexual harassment jurisdiction in the Fair Work Commission uh, that will commence, uh, investigations are going to become more commonplace um, in most organisations. And so my advice would be to um, locate the right investigator for the particular matters. Uh, if you're doing them internally, um, perhaps consider whether your internal HR team would like some specific training on workplace investigations. And I would say particularly um, admissibility of evidence. We haven't got time to go into uh, all the aspects of uh, admissible evidence today because um, it's pretty much, and literally is a, is a textbook, but um, that might be something you want to invest in uh, for your particular team. And if so, let us know. Um, so we do have a question, which is, um, do I still need to investigate allegations of wrongdoing if um, the employee has resigned before the investigation commences? Good question. I think it depends on a couple of things. One, whether a statutory scheme actually compels you to investigate. So if you're a school, for example, and it's reportable conduct, you really have an obligation under um, the relevant legislation to investigate that, whether the person's resigned or not, and whether they um, uh, uh, agree to participate or not. Secondly, I think, depending on the severity of the allegations and your company's approach to good governance, some things really should be investigated just for, I think, the protection of the company or the board. So it would be pretty rare to have a serious allegation of sexual harassment that is not investigated or perhaps allegations of um, systemic bullying or safety risks in the organisation. You're probably going to want to understand the extent of someone's behaviour and whether there are other participants in that uh, fraud. Fraud is another example. Um, well, thank you very much for joining Kate and I today. Our next uh, webinar is in December on the new IR reforms being um, currently debated in the Senate by the Albanese government, which we should have an answer to by um, by then. So we look forward to discussing that with you next time. Have a great week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone.